Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is an honor to be here with you today. If I fall off this box, it's going to be an experience along with that honor. But I'm short. And last night I was watching Evelyn with her lovely tall presence and this uh, lectern. And I thought, I've got to problem solve something. So we got to pan out of the kitchen and we'll see how long it lasts. <laughs> but I'm honored to study with you today. I'm very excited. And I surely benefit most when I do an in-depth study like this to share with others. So I'm thrilled at the opportunity and um, all the main points that are in my notes, including bibliography and everything. So you can uh, relax and enjoy a lot with the PowerPoint if you'd like to. And um, we'll have a wonderful time together, I hope. Jonah had used his free will to run from God's request. And he was now at the mercy of a giant sea creature, an enormous creature of the deep that ever since it was born, it had opened its mouth to consume the life that swam in the waters. Now here it was, bowing its will to God's request and opening its mouth to save the precious human life of Jonah. While there are many medieval drawings like this one of Jonah, Hollywood movie makers have not produced films about Jonah's adventure, like they have other Bible stories. Some of us have movie images of our mind of Charlton Heston raising his arms and the staff high to open the waters of the Red Sea as the Israelites walk through on dry land. But no great movie producer has made a film of Jonah inside the belly of the sea monster. Well, maybe the Veggie Tales. But um, they could have, Hollywood could have produced an actual biography uh, about James Bartley who in the early 1900s, he was a seaman off the Falkland Islands, and he fell into the mouth of a giant sperm whale, went there for 15 hours before being uh, thrown up, as we'll talk about. He suffered skin burns all over him and some temporary blindness, but he went back to work three weeks later. And of course, we don't know what this giant, this giant creature was sent to swallow Jonah. We don't know if it's a blue whale or a mega mouth shark or a whale shark or a sperm whale or some now extinct creature. And there are many possibilities, as most giant sea creatures have air pockets within their stomachs. Some have multiple stomachs. The great whales swallow, use their stretchy esophagus to swallow down food whole. And the muscles of this fore stomach, where food comes to begin with, crush down their food before it passes into the stomachs that have pyloric acids. That fore stomach is so large it can handle a ton of krill and squid. But in the story of Jonah, God used the Hebrew word dag. And this is a generic term that encompasses not fish or whale, but any aquatic creature. So why doesn't Hollywood want to make money from a movie about Jonah down in the belly of a sea creature? Well, why? Because it would be disgusting. It would be completely dark. 
inside of another living being. Not like Disney's Geppetto with, uh, inside the whale with this little candle. You know, we, we, we think of that if we grew up on, on Geppetto. No, no, complete darkness. It would be horrible. It would be smelly. It would be slimy and filled with digestive juices and methane gas coming up from other um, food being digested. And it would be the ultimate in seasickness as this undulating creature would twist and swirl all around the Mediterranean Sea for three days? And who would want to watch a movie of that? So instead of Hollywood's idea, what we do have is historical art putting into paint the imaginations of men as they read Jonah's firsthand account. And we must be discerning when we look at these pictures for some are more accurate than others. Possibly the earliest depiction of the story of Jonah is from the 3rd century catacombs of San Callisto, right outside of Rome. This is a very small painting. It's above a wall grain. You have to lean down in order to see it. It's possible it may have been painted by our Roman brethren. Uh, this incredible early 4th century floor mosaics found at the bottom of the Basilica Aquileia. They excavated a 12th century church and beneath it found these authentic um, mosaics from the early 300s. And you can see the people knew the Mediterranean sea life very well. These are actual um, uh, sea creatures in striking detail, a little teeny tiny rock and stone. What's interesting is of the dozens and dozens of interpretations of the story of Jonah that I've looked at from ancient to medieval times, it's interesting that none of them portray a traditional whale like we would think of, like the pods of whales that inhabit the Mediterranean today. It's always some kind of, I, I call it a plesiosaur or a fish-like monster. them delivering Jonah down into this creature here. Only the Lord and Jonah know for sure. So here is one of the most amazing pieces out of those catacombs of Rome. The Jonah sarcophagus from the 3rd century AD. It's hewn out of one piece of pure marble. This stone coffin is elaborate. It's just gorgeous. It's in the back rooms of the Vatican Museum, and it tells the complete story of Jonah. Here's some close-ups from the coffin. Um, so you can see Jonah here being delivered down into the mouth of the sea creature, and then up above being spewed out onto dry land. But here's what's interesting about the Jonah sarcophagus. The story is authenticated by... shown here as the Good Shepherd. In the 200s AD, they understood the whole connection. Remember, before the Renaissance, throughout the early centuries and the Middle Ages, 95% of the population of the world was illiterate. So biblical art was used to tell stories and to put uh, the ideas into people's minds, much like we do visual aids for young children. Nowadays, who cannot read? So these artists are imagining out of their frame of reference, just like you and I do. Look at these guys. And our Evelyn was talking about how they must have felt um, delivering him over into the, into the deep. This is from, I think, 
I want to say like the early 1200s. Uh, but look at this guy. He's got his eyes covered with his robe there. And these two are looking at each other like, what are we doing? <laughs> this is out of a, a manuscript book. This is from the altar at uh, Verdun, Germany. But look at the teeth on this guy here. They really felt like he was going to get chewed alive. This is from the Byzantine denomination tradition. They always give a halo to someone who's uh, hopefully going to be victorious in, in God's name. And this last one is from the time of the crusade. Look at the crusader right up here. Perhaps uh, remembering Jonah's perseverance through his troubles. So here we find Jonah in that stinking, suffocating gut of a great sea monster fish where God has miraculously preserved his life. And in this horrifying experience, Jonah cries out. Um, I'm starting at the beginning of the prayer here at verse 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Well, breathing underwater, inside the skeleton of a sea creature, Jonah calls out to the Lord. What a beautiful job Evelyn did talking about Yahweh, the Lord. And sometimes in young people's classes and everything, they talk about the idol gods. And I'm like, okay, keep in mind, they're nothing. Okay, there aren't really other gods. There's only one God. And I usually pull up a box of crayons, and I'm like, okay, so we could say this is an idol. We'll worship the Church of the Crayons and put it in their mind that there really aren't other gods. There's only one God. But Jonah calls out here um, the, the creator of the universe who could command a fish to swallow a man whole without killing him. Like a drowning child being heard by a loving father, Jonah could only cry out. And even though he had disobeyed God and was undeserving, Jonah knew God was listening to his wail of agony. Do you know, you know the kind of prayer I'm talking about? When you are desperate and you see no way out and you feel immersed in the agony of your life, and as you are submerged in anguish and in that moment, open your heart to God? Heart surgeons who have opened the human chest thousands of times still express awe at that beating heart, the pulse of life that can stop at any minute. But this is where this kind of prayer comes from. And we've all done it, haven't we? Help me, I have got nowhere to turn. Jonah humbled his spirit deep inside that sea monster, and he brought with him a powerful weapon. And that weapon was vital. Jonah knew the Psalms, and he intersperses several Psalms into his prayers. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord to my God. I cried for help from his temple. He heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Psalm 18, verse 5 and 6. Jonah uses about half of this psalm in his prayers. Look at Psalm 30, verse 3. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Psalm 120, verse 1. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. He just quoted that one verbatim. 
God's word was inside Jonah, just as Jonah was inside that great fish. Now, if you were in this helpless situation, what would you bring along as your weapon of choice? A knife? Or the powerful weapon of the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God? What can you and I quote under pressure? For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows have passed over me. Jonah knew it was God's hand of discipline that had hurled him into the deep. He does not argue that he deserves to be a castaway without even a rock to cling to. Looking up from the ocean waves, he acknowledges, this is God's ocean. Your waves and your billows break over my head. Then I said, I have driven from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. While God sees all within his creation, when we as God's children bow our will before the throne of God, we are in his sight and receive his favor. But when we turn our back on the Lord, when Jonah turned from serving the Lord, we exit that throne room and we step away from the favor of the Lord. But in hope of deliverance, Jonah calls upon the Lord's mercy, not just on the mercy seat in Jerusalem, but in his ever-present temple of the earth. The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. Seaweed twisted and entangled him like a wet burial shroud, preparing him for the grave, and he began to drown in the deep. And I have to wonder about Jonah's human feelings. I am terrified here, engulfed in seaweed, and I, and I pray to you, begging for your help. And this is your answer? The horror of being swallowed by a sea monster? At the roots of the mountains, when I went down to the land, whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord my God. Even in the pit of the ocean, where the mountains begin, the Lord was right there caring for Jonah's needs. And I must admit, I'm astonished that with all of our technology, we cannot find Malaysian Airlines Flight 370. 227 passengers and 12 crew members perished on March 8, 2014. They perished into a part of the ocean that has deep caves within it. And deep caverns even within those caves, so deep that all of our technology cannot find them. God knows where they are. And if there was a New Testament Christian on board that plane, God was right there with them. And in those moments, I fly a lot. <laughs> and I'm not an earth flyer. But I think about these people in those moments of terror when they knew they're going down. The Lord was right there with them, wrapping his loving arms, ready to take them to paradise. Keep forever in your heart that whatever 
may bring. Whatever pit you're in, even in the unmeasured depths of the ocean where no light has shone since the first day of creation, God is deeper still. And your God is greater and mightier than any pit of the sea that he created. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. As long as he was conscious, Jonah continued to call to the Lord, going back into that throne room before God and bowing before him in humility. He was not floating out a message in a bottle, hoping that someone would answer, but as a disobedient messenger lying prostrate before the throne of his sovereign that he had disobeyed. His message was not of sound, not squeezed out through his mouth, through the mouth of a fish, up into the atmosphere, to the temple of Jerusalem. No, a whisper from a cracked open heart of humility, asking for mercy from the sovereign he has disobeyed. Even silent lips can cry out in heartbreak, Please have mercy on me. Not, not because I deserve it, but because of who you are. Please have mercy on me. Bring to the forefront of your mind that prayer is not some magic spell cast to impose my will on God, but it's rather sharing my heart, my feelings, and my needs in complete submission and seeking His will asking for his help, looking for his providing hand to work in this world. Pop culture says, give me what I want in prayer. Have you heard people pray this way? For people who do not want to obey our Lord, to ask for his blessing is ridiculous. But when God's children ask in submission, he will help. 1 John 5, 14 and 15, if I post it on my bathroom mirror. And yes, there's a huge responsibility to turn and obey as part of that help. You can ask Jonah about that. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah knew those human-carved idols seen everywhere around the ancient world had no power of steadfast love. And he proclaims that if you give up the blessing, you give up the blessings of God's love if you believe in these pagan images. You can't have both. Jonah knew that in the days of Elijah, the true God had sent fire from heaven to prove his power over the idol worshippers of Baal. Jonah knew the true God loved obedient Noah and his family and saved him from that worldwide flood. So you see, Jonah knew far more than the Psalms. He knew the true God's love was working in human lives since the day of creation. And Jonah knew that God had provided a fish large enough to cradle him from death. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Repentant and grateful, 
Jonah is learning to give thanks in everything, like Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. And he vows, okay, Lord, I get it. I yield my body, my stubborn will for whatever is ahead. I love the song, I am thine, O Lord, I have heard thy voice. Jonah knew that all salvation was from the Lord, not through the right jobs or the right clothes or the right politics. Salvation does not come through my will, but in submitting my will to his law. And God spoke to the animal, and it obeyed his will. And the human who God had given free will was now released to exercise it. Here's an example of some inaccurate biblical art. I wish the lights were dim, more dim, and you can see this on a digital screen. Because look at the fish tenderly delivering Jonah up to the shore and stepping up gingerly onto the shore. This scene would not have looked like this because in the interlinear, the Hebrew word means just what you think it would mean. You've all had a two-year-old car sick. It means to spew out, vomit out, up again. This was a violent act. Can, can you close your eyes and imagine Jonah up on that beach with his face in the sand, covered with slime and seawater, gasping for breath, maybe pinching himself, you know, what, half hysterical, scarcely believing? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. My will is yours. I- I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Thank you, Lord. This fugitive prophet had been given a second chance. Do you think his face was still in the sand when that word of the Lord was so wonderful that Christy pointed out seven times the word of the Lord came to him? Not only is a lie, but the Lord still will talk to him and use him. Do you think he got up and ran? His vow turned into obedience when he rose up with the energy of a genuine repentance. So here's his new journey. What do you think his thoughts were in that month-long walk from Joppa to Nineveh? How many times a day did he just stop and drop to his knees and just thank the Lord, remembering the smell inside the stomach of that creature, remembering the, the amount of oxygen the Lord provided for him along with the gases and everything else that would have been there, remembering the total uncertainty about what was going to happen one second later. To stop and just drop to his knees in the sand and just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Can we ever be too thankful? So this is the artist drawing of what Nineveh would have looked like as Jonah approached. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. This was the glittering star of the neighboring superpower, Assyrian Empire, 500 miles to the east. 135 times the word Assyria or Assyrians is used in our scriptures, not once with affection. Hebrew people hated these people. Let's face it, everyone in the ancient world hated these people. I love, everyone said, the Nazis of the ancient world. That is the picture. Keep that picture in your mind. Well, this is the actual 1851 drawing 
of the dismantling of Sennacherib's palace. Now remember, there's no camera. So when you go on an archaeological expedition, you take along an artist. And the artist sat there and drew this amazing scene. Sir, Sir Austin Henry Laird um, spent so much time in um, the Middle East, and we have so much gratitude to give to him. But you can see how they dug into this big mound of sand. Babylonians didn't care. They covered it over, and then, of course, centuries of sand blowing over it covered it over. This is all sand right here. This is Sir Austin Henry Laird supervising. They're turning over the winged bull, and they're ready to create it here to ship to the British Museum in London. And here it is right here as it stands in London today. And it's a good thing that the British were really, uh, once they realized about history and archaeology, spent so much time in the ancient world. Uh, because uh, what was once the glory of Assyria is now not being preserved, how should we say. There's not much interest in ancient artifacts. This is a 3,000-year-old artifact being smashed, and Evelyn, wonderful job showing us that the mosque that reverences Jonah. So even their own history, which is ours as Christians, as the Assyrians integrated with us, is disrespected. But today, the modern-day city of Mosul is on the west bank of the river Tigris, and Nineveh on the east bank of the river Tigris. This is a news photo from June when ISIS took over the city broke open the prison doors, let out 1,400 prisoners, sorted them by Sunni and Shiite, took the Shiites out of the desert, 670 men and women, had them kneel, and killed them. Obviously, Nineveh is not currently a tourist destination nor a place for archaeologists. So here's a little bit of the ancient wall that you can see on the map that um, Evelyn showed you earlier. The streets within the city all intersected into courtyards. It's really very well planned city. And the larger city, that complex that could have had a million people, would have taken about three days to walk across. If you can walk about 20 miles in a day, it's about 60 miles across the big complex area. So the scriptures say a three days journey, it would have been about three days to walk the entire city and announce um, the repentance. Um, the walls of the city originally were 199 feet high. All ancient cities were fortified because of constant warring going on. And um, Halley and Wycliffe and a lot of the old Bible commentators talk about the races they used to do on top of them. So the top was so wide that they could race three to four chariots along them. And this was a very, very popular thing to do. Of course, you know, they bashed into each other, people got killed. If you have the chariot scene from Ben-Hur in your mind with the four horses and the chariot, these were four-horse chariots also in Assyria because war chariots had four horses. And so they would race them side by side in these tight turns around the city. And of course, it was gambling involved, which is part of uh, ancient culture also. But very, very huge wall and not like you would think a little top of it wide enough for four war chariots at the top of it. The point is, Nineveh was an enormous city. It was really gigantic. And realize, so for 19 centuries, okay, 2500 BC to 609, 612 BC, when the final fall was, Assyria was really the superpower of the ancient world. I mean, Egypt and there were others, but it was huge, 19 centuries. Okay, 
So America has been a world power to date, what, less than three centuries? So only Assyria, only priests ascended to the top of the Assyrians' huge stepped pyramids that were called ziggurats. They recorded all the celestial movements of the sun god and the moon god, believing that these were messages that they should uh, listen to. Uh, the priest actually laid on his back every evening and every day and recorded everything that was, was going on up there. Uh, the supreme god was Asher, the god of war. And uh, that's from whence came the name Assyrians. Uh, the ziggurat would have been surrounded by uh, a multiplex of little mini temples for the god of your choice. Uh, you can see the strip mall effect if you ever get to go to Pompeii, the excavated um, city of Rome. Ever, uh, Egyptians, uh, Romans, uh, Assyrians all had the same system for the god of your choice. So it was a little strip mall, these little teeny tiny temples that surrounded maybe one large uh, temple or a ziggurat in this case. And idol worshippers would choose the god of your choice, like a, uh, for the Romans, Artemis or Apollo, and they'd pay their money and make a sacrifice. If you paid enough money, you got to visit the temple prostitute. And um, it was much like a shopping mall. Think of a shopping mall, a famous footwear or Payless shoe source. You, you would pick different gods that you would like to, to uh, visit. And it all had the same motive, to keep the idol worshippers coming to maintain power and make money. And don't confuse idol worship with what we think of as devotion. Um, yes, there was devotion on part of the ones paying uh, and coming, but the whole purpose of it was power and money. Very, very, very different. And um, it's interesting, if you, if, you, if you get to England, and at Bath, England, they have an ancient Roman bath there. And it's one of the deepest understandings I've ever seen of idol worship because they excavated the curses. A lot of idol worship was based on cursing. You know how we are asking for blessings from God? A lot of idol worship was based on cursing. And they excavated these actual curses where they would throw them into the sacred pool asking to kill somebody who made them mad. And everything. So idol worship was, it's just really hard for us to, to uh, fathom what it was all about. Just remember the multiplex, and there were probably several carved gods in that ship that they were throwing over because you brought along your own god. In the British Museum, the girls even had their own little pocket gods, like we'd have a poly pocket, like a pocket Artemis, you know, to carry along. So it's very, very, very different system. And anything you could sell, you know, uh, the, uh, the, new, the new god, you know, for teenage girls or whatever, was very much, they were great marketers of the ancient world. Um, and, and, and one of you two made a point, I think Emma made the point, you know, we serve out of love. That was not the case with idol worship. It was not serving out of love. It was all about, I flip with them. Uh, what's in it for me? You know, what can I get from you? So, um, all right. So, um, so here's a reproduction of that Sennacherib palace. That same artist actually painted it what it would have looked like. Everything you're going to look at and the ones you just looked at were actually painted in brilliant color. And the same for Roman statues. If you look at a Roman statue sometime, remember, in that time it was painted. The eyes and the clothes and everything were brilliantly painted to life. There was a whole system of artists that would paint onto marble and granite. So remember when you're looking at some of these bar reliefs that they were at, at, in their day painted brilliantly. 
If I, if I could be Miss Frizzle, do you all know the Magic School Bus? <laughs> I'll tell you what, I would pile you all on the Magic School Bus right now, and we would go to London and go to the British Museum, we'd have a blast. Because we would stand there with our Bibles, and we would go room to room, and we would look at the, the, the models that they have of um, the, uh, the Greek physicians like Luke would have been, and they have these incredible models that they used at that time, clay models of the organs, material organs that they helped to learn the physicians, uh, you know, about the interior of the body and and all these Assyrian artifacts that we're going to look at today. It's just the most fantastic place. I've been twice, and give me a toothbrush, and I'd be on a plane tomorrow to go again, and I would take all of you with me because it's just that fantastic about Bible history. It, it's, and I've been to Pompeii and many other places, but. As far as Bible history in one place and air conditioning, <laughs> you're not digging in the desert. It is a thrill. Oh, I'm playing nutty professor here. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, we do come fill your cup, London. How about that? All right. All right. Here we go. So if you're ever able to go there and see these incredible deities, there's 8 million artifacts in the British Museum collection. And it spans all of ancient history. It's just a thrill to see the awesome Bible-supporting evidence in the collection. And um, keep in mind, when you look at these, in Jonah's day, when he walked into Nineveh, these would have all been painted in brilliant and very scary detailed color. Uh, this is the winged bull and um, Asher there. So um, what's interesting the largest suites of the British Museum have just been remodeled. And they're not for the Greek or the Roman or the Egyptian exhibits. And the museum owns equally vast numbers of all of these artifacts. Uh, no, no. Uh, one wing has just been comfortably en enlarged. And the display case is completely spaced out. And all of this room here, um, while the Egyptian exhibit, now the mummies are like elbow to elbow. I didn't understand when I watched them. All crammed together, elbow to elbow mummies and gold scepters and 5,000 year old pottery. Um, so think about this for just a second. Why would you make the Assyrian and Persian wing so much bigger than Egypt or Greek? They bring in large groups of school children into the Assyrian and Persian wing of the British Museum. Every day I see them with their cute little uniforms and I chat with their teachers and barely Church of England is still the number one religion in the city of London. Islam, 28% of the people who live in the city of London are believers in Islam. First time I went, I had a bunch of my girls with me and, and we had to go into banks all the time to cash driver's checks. Every teller I had was wearing a hijab. And I, I live in California. I have many Islamic students. I mean, I'm very familiar with families and uh, things. But I was shocked. In the city of London, 28% profess Islam. So the museum is catering to the population and expanding the wings for these areas. Sennacherib. Oh, can you see Sennacherib here? Sennacherib's palace, which is the, one that, the biggest one that Austin Henry Laird was able to um, excavate. You can see him on his throne here. He's accepting tribute here from his, his enemies. So understanding, it's like bullying, okay? I'm a bully. I have more um, uh, soldiers.
soldiers than you do. I have more uh, ability to siege than you do. I come to you. You give me tribute, and I don't kill you for a little while. Okay? So here are the Judeans of Lachish right here. I've blown this up and inserted it here, begging for mercy. Okay, so this is from Lakish right here. And his throne room, they had it set up. It's 90 feet of panels like this. His throne room was set up, and they set it up at the museum, actually, as it was. And all it is is celebrating the, the demise of Lakish. So here's the Judean brethren. It shows the siege. It shows the battle. It shows them begging for mercy, and then it begins showing the torture all around them. So every day when he sat in his throne room, he thought, oh, you know, I'm the best bully around because I killed off all of these people in Lakish. Um, the, their, their architecture was amazing. Not only did the palace have 80 rooms, but it had adjustable air vents at just the way the, the winds would have come in the evening to bring in cool breezes into the, the palace. Um, the furniture was all solid ivory, carved from solid ivory with gold trims. Um, so Ella talked a little bit about uh, yesterday. So Samaria, Jerusalem, 30 miles southwest is Lakish. Okay, very, very. He already has Samaria, already has Lakish, Jerusalem, right here in the middle. So what he did after he got Lakish, okay, after he tortured and killed the, the people who were fighting him and then took the rest back to Assyria to be slaves, they, they had been slaves. So he was very careful to keep the craftsmen. And guess what those Judean craftsmen had to do? It was their job to carve these reliefs of the slaughter of their own people. This is what you did to us, and then we're going to go home and spend our lives doing this amazing carving of what was done to our brothers and sisters, cousins, family. This man was cruel. I mean... Oh, wrong remote, sorry. <laughs> so, relief carvings, all not just in his palace, all over the walls of Nineveh. It kept this um, awe in the air. It showed him dominating his enemies. A lot of lion killing. They had lots and lots of reliefs of lion killing to say, um, you know, the king is... Uh, uh, mean and violent and don't get in his way. And so all the art was doubled into propaganda. Um, Jonah lived, we know, during the king of Jeroboam, uh, King Jeroboam II. Um, but we've all talked a little bit about the date, 780 to 790 or so. And these are several kings that could have lived during that time period. I want you to look at Adab Narari, though, here. Adab Narari III, from 811 to 783 B.C. Um, What's really, really interesting is that Assyrian records record a brief period of monotheism during the reign of Adonirari III, the third. And he was young, so he was probably like, you know, uh, 12, 13, 14 years old when he started reigning. So he was a co-regent with his mother, Queen Semiramis. And during this time, there was probably a 20, 30-year period of monotheism. We don't know if this was exactly a result of Jonah. We'll get one of those things we get to find out when we're in heaven with our Lord. But isn't that exciting to think about that? And that's all Assyrian records it. They record him as a very weak king. And one of our speakers said it was a very weak time. But uh, 
interesting that perhaps he and his mom decided that this was going to be something that the, the people were going to continue. Um, who knows? Assyrian king held absolute power in every era of life. And he had an arsenal of officials to do his bidding. He did not spare himself any luxury. It's not surprising that the treatment of women was worse in Assyria than anywhere else in the ancient world. Very similar to current Islamic regulations as far as no personal rights for women. Assyrian men had these huge curled beards and they were held together by lard. Um, I, I, was, I kept, every time I'm working on this, I started working on it back in June and I kept thinking, imagine how that smelled. All these men with these beards with lard and this hot somewhere. But uh, notice the earrings. Uh, notice the long gold earrings here. And this guy's got them surrounding his whole uh, outer ear here. But the long, very stylistic, almost braided in curls here with lard keeping it nice and smooth and shiny. Um, Assyrians loved jewelry. Really, really, really loved jewelry. The nobles and the kings wore these lavish tunics with tons of fringe, gold fringe all over it. And the wealthy decorated themselves with um, elaborate uh, jewelry, lots of ivory and gold. And here we see King Ashurbanipal. Very, very, very interesting plan. I think Aaron's probably going to tell us a lot about Ashurbanipal. But what, look at the scene. So here he is reclining right here. Okay. He has his queen sitting right here. She's sipping from a bowl. These bowls are going to be from. He's got slaves right here fanning him. All right. And here's more slaves playing the harp down here. Can you see the harp? All right. More slaves here uh, playing instruments right here and fanning the queen. But what's really hard to see if, if you're not looking for it. So he's relaxing. He's having a wonderful, wonderful relaxing day here. He's not about killing lions or making war here. And he has a decoration in his throne room. It's right here. But I've loaded up right here. It's actually the head of the king of Elam. His name was Taman. That's the king of Elam. Like we put up a Christmas decoration. He's got this hanging in the tree. And look, it's right where his eyes will gaze at it. Like, oh, I'm, as, as, as I'm bad, I've killed off the king of Elam, and I get to hang his head right here. Is that disgusting or what? And interestingly enough, Ashurbanipal was an intellectual among the Assyrian kings. He formed the very first library of cuneiform tablets. 20,000 cylinders. When um, Sir Austin Henry Layard excavated his library, it was like, wow, we can really understand what is going on here. And it's hard to see right here. There's shelves over here in this wall that has the, the clay tablets in the, in the background there. And it was actually a lending library. Intellectuals could come and, and learn from and read the cuneiform tablets of Assyrian history at the time. Assyrians loved to write about, and they loved to rehearse their conquests. So they loved to write about what had gone on and, and what they were doing. Um, and the cuneiform was carved directly into soft clay, two ways, carved directly into soft clay, or it was put onto a cylinder. They carved a cylinder like this, 
And then they would roll that cylinder over wet clay to imprint, like we would use stamps, imprint, and fire that clay tablet, and they could mass produce it like the newspaper. So we could go out to every city, this is what's just happened, and the king has done this today. And they were very, very prolific writers. Um, there are a million cuneiform tablets that have been excavated. Now, only 100,000 of them have ever been translated. In 1835, Sir Henry Rawlinson uh, figured out that cuneiform was phonetic. And so uh, I put a little sample there in your text. And so he was able to begin deciphering it in 1835. So when um, Layer discovered the library in 1851, it was like, wow, you know, we can read this. But remember, of those million, we still only translated 100,000 of them. It's not a, a very a easy process of translation. Here we go. Now we're going to get excited, as if I'm not excited. <laughs> Here we go. Look at this. This is the Taylor Prism. This is one of the greatest treasures, in my opinion, of the British Museum. I see head nodding back there. I'm like, oh, another, yay, from 691 BC. This prism is especially exciting for Christians because it was created during the, uh, during the reign of King Sennacherib, and it records the invasion of Canaan, the conquering of Lachish, and the siege of Jerusalem. It tells of Hezekiah. I can't tell you what it's like to stand there with your Bible and read this standing right next to the case. It tells of Hezekiah giving his silver and stripping the gold from the temple doors to Sennacherib. I get so excited about extra biblical proof that the Bible is true. Imagine what history might still be hiding in those 900,000 untranslated cylinders. Now, of course, Sennacherib does not tell the rest of the story about the angel of the Lord coming in and killing 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in the night. And Sennacherib returned home to Nineveh in disgrace. And he was worshipping in the temple of his idol god, Nisroch, and his own sons came and murdered him with a sword. Second Chronicles 32, 30, uh, 32 and 21. Here's another treasure. And Evelyn showed you the big part of it. It's the obelisk, the black obelisk of Shalmaneser. You can see right down here is Jehu the king of the, the northern kingdom of Israel, bowing down, giving tribute here to Shalmaneser III, <laughs> trying to stay their execution. And the Lord ended up using them many, many years, using the Assyrians many, many years later to punish his people in 722 B.C. Assyrian cylinders, those cylinders, they record contact with ten Hebrew kings. So we're getting extra biblical evidence for ten Hebrew kings, um, Omri, Ahab, Jehu, Menahem, Pekah, Messiah, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Manasseh. But let's look at what the Assyrians did best. When Assyrians woke up every morning and said, okay, we're going to make war on someone. When a little baby boy was born, I speak about this, a little baby boy was born in Assyria, they said, okay, you know, this is what we do. We grow up to be soldiers and we make war on the neighbors. Their idea was always to gain more and more land and wealth. And here's some of those siege scenes. Oh, I wish I could show you each one. They would build these huge ramps up to the top of a fortified city. And they developed the battering ram hundreds of years before the Romans were even in existence. They were the largest military empire in the world at their time. And their weapon of choice was terror. 
Can you see this right here? These are pictures, and they're quite striking, and I don't want to be indelicate, but these are the walls of Nineveh. Um, you can see right here, they're impaling the Judean of Lakeish here. I mean, they're taking time torturing people. So some were impaled, some were decapitated, This really is particularly disturbing. Okay, here, so here's the Assyrian captor over uh, a Judean here, and they're making him grind up the bones of his ancestors and then eat the dust. Here's the gates of the palace of Shalmaneser III. Some captives were gradually dismembered. The Assyrian practice was Remember, they wanted to terrorize people. They wanted that bully terror element because of tribute. So their practice was to cut off body parts first and display them. So notice the feet down here and hands. And notice the heads mounted all around. Now these are the gates, the palace gates. So you would pass through these gates. Think about what they're saying now. It's not welcome to Knoxville. It's Welcome to Nineveh. This is what we do to our neighbors. While they usually enslaved entire societies, like the northern kingdom of Israel, um, if a group was particularly rebellious, the whole population would be a massacre. And then they pile the heads right here outside the wall as another visual aid for others that might want to stand up against them. And here's horrible one from Lakish. Also, these are Judeans. This is the flame where they would tie out the men. And they actually have a special tool like a potato peeler that they would skin people alive with. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be indelicate, but it's, this is the truth, and it's just really horrid. Um, and here's the worst part. Then they took the human skins and they pasted them on the outside of the walls of Nineveh. So it's for these blood-curdling ways that the name Assyria, Assyrian became a byword for cruelty and atrocity. To act like an Assyrian was a huge insult because their specialty was torture. Assyrian writings describe their method. They wrote it down, too, like future generations would want to know this, for mutilating prisoners. And it's not imagination. This is documentation. They were notorious for their brutality and detailed bragging about it. For them, to the Assyrians, human life was cheap and terror reigned. So, God sent Jonah. God sent Jonah to these Assyrian neighbors, known for their atrocities, to share the message of repentance and love, and they listened. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Surely, dressed as a Jew, Jonah would have looked very different and drawn a crowd anyway. Imagine as he cried out God's impending judgment throughout those courtyards in the city. And perhaps people gathered around him, and, and he got to tell his story of what happened when he disobeyed God's will. Well, here we go. We know the Arabic people heard this story because 
It is included in the Quran, chapter 37. This is a medieval Quran drawing of the portion of the Jonah story that they've included in chapter 37 of their Quran. And I find it very interesting that they completely allow the story of Jonah and his three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. And yet when our Lord spends three nights within the grave and comes to us resurrected and alive, they have no interest in him. But Jesus Christ said, For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to his generation. Jonah had first-hand experience with God's steadfast love, and he understood the possibility that if the Ninevites turned, they would be saved. The people of Nineveh believe God. They call for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in the ashes. He issued a proclamation and published throughout Jonah. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, and I added that underline there, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. While the Assyrians had watched many people beg for mercy from them, like these Elamites, after Jonah's preaching, the Ninevehs themselves showed repentance, what they did, not by word only, but indeed. The king, who was accustomed to beautiful robes and jewelry, led the repentance by example as he fasted and put on rough, irritating goat hair and sat in filthy ashes, as if to admit, I am a powerless nothing. Remember how much they loved elaborate so the contrast is really, really, really stark. Perhaps they try to show their repentance by holding fast their mouths from tasting or speaking any pleasure, by keeping their eyes from looking at any beautiful objects, by covering their animals in sackcloth of humility as a reminder of their repentance. These ruthless Assyrian conquerors put on lowliness before God without any promise that their repentance would keep them from destruction. They must have understood that somehow God loved them, or we would not have given them that second chance. No one has yet translated a cuneiform cylinder recording this great fast and repentance. And like most of us, who make our scrapbooks look a bit better, better than they reality might have been, the Assyrians really only wrote down their victories. But here's the actual archaeological evidence that this great repentance actually happened. Are you ready? Jesus Christ said so. Matthew 12, 41. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. I've been thinking about this and thinking about this. We don't know, as the incarnate Christ, 
We don't know how much he limited himself. We don't know what he learned as a child and, and, and when he used divine knowledge and when he didn't. That was his discernment. But I wonder, perhaps, as the pre-incarnate Christ, who was there since the beginning of the world, as he watched this great repentance. Remember, Jesus said in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. And at the transfiguration, he didn't need to be introduced to Elijah and Moses. So when he said to the people of his day, they repented at the teaching of Jonah. We know that as God in human form, he authenticated that this actually happened. God decided that they were heartily sorry for their ways and were worthy of a stay of destruction. Perhaps an entire generation, perhaps that whole 30 years of Ninevites lived in humility because of this experience. Unlike the Assyrian view that life is cheap, God showed Jonah that not only was his life precious, but the life of his Assyrian neighbors and their souls were precious also. Could Jonah have taught the Assyrians about repentance had he not really repented himself? Could Jonah have taught about God's steadfast, outpouring love had he not experienced it himself? Can I tell you something? I don't usually tell personal stories. It was March of 1979, the last time I was in Knoxville, Tennessee. I sang downtown as a big Methodist cathedral, downtown. And I wore a long black formal gown, and I sang in Italian and German and Latin, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy upon us. On you stay, we told you, mundi, Lamb of God, who take us away the sins of the world. I was very sincere in what I was doing. But I was completely wrong. I was performing before the Lord in a way that was completely displeasing to him. Instead of humbling myself before him. And just like the Assyrians, I was your neighbor. And I needed someone to bring me the news to change. You see, that same steadfast love that God had for Jonah, he also had for Adonirari and his mother, Queen Semiramis, and for you and for me and for our neighbors and for my Islamic neighbors in California. Remember this. If you never remember anything else today, you will never meet a soul that God does not love. If the Lord prepared the fish and prepared Jonah for this mission, what has he prepared you for? Remember, God could have picked someone who would have straight out obeyed him. God knows the past, the present, the future. He could have picked someone to do that. But think about how much we get to learn about Jonah and about ourselves. Right now, what is your stubborn will and my stubborn will running from until we end up in the stinking belly of the fish and have nowhere else to go. Until we give up our pride and our self-reliance and bow our will as Jonah did 
to the loving will of God. Where the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Thank you all. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.